Welcome to Technovation, a weekly conversation with people who are shaping the technology landscape. I'm Peter High, president of MetaStrategy, advisor to technology executives, Forbes columnist, book author, and your host. Each episode of Technovation features insights from top executives and thought leaders at the intersection of business, technology, and innovation. If you like what you hear, we'd be grateful if you give us a rating on iTunes or through whatever other source you use for podcasts. And please subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Thank you. My guest today is Ted Colbert. Ted's an executive vice president of the Boeing Company and president and chief executive officer of Boeing Global Services, one of the company's main business units, which offers cost-competitive service solutions to commercial, defense, and space customers. In this role, Ted's responsible for leading Boeing's aerospace services development and delivery model for commercial, government, and aviation industry customers worldwide, specifically focused on global supply chain and parts distribution, aircraft modifications and maintenance, digital solutions, aftermarket engineering, analytics, and training. Prior to becoming CEO of Boeing Global Services in 2019, Ted was Boeing's Chief Information Officer and Senior Vice President of Information Technology and Data Analytics. Prior to his time at Boeing, Ted was the Senior Vice President of Enterprise Architecture at Citigroup. In this interview, we discuss racial inequities and social justice and the importance of not reinforcing the same networks and biases, but rather providing equal opportunity when it comes to developing talent. We also discuss how the company is bringing in excellent talent by investing in historically black colleges and universities, high school programs, and other funds, and a variety of other topics. Before we get to our interview, I wanted to introduce you to our sponsor, Zoho, and the company's president, Timothy Casby. Prior to taking on his current role, he was the chief information officer of a number of companies, including Reliance Industries, Sears, Intrexon, and the Warehouse Group. He's now at Zoho, a most unusual enterprise software company, and wanted to share some perspectives from it. Timothy, take it away. Thank you, Peter. A recent survey by Zoho and Beagle Research shows that 40% of large enterprise employees find their work to be chaotic working with multiple technology platforms that do not talk to each other. What this study reveals is that businesses want unified solutions that streamline complex business processes like data migration, content creation, contextual collaboration, communication, and search. And in the recent update to our workplace, that is exactly what we've done. We have pre-built integrations of nine apps like email, employee collaboration, meetings, presentations, spreadsheets, document writer, intranet portal with our AI and search as foundational elements. So to give context for business issues being addressed by employees in any of these app domains, Zoho Workplace has seen rapid adoption in the last quarter, now supporting over 2 million businesses located across more than 150 countries. More than 25% of new Zoho Workplace customers have made the decision to switch over to us from G Suite and Microsoft. Discover more at zoho.com slash workplace. Thanks, Timothy. And now on to the interview. I'm curious how you've kind of reflected on the the Black Lives Matter movements, as well as, you know, as I was just sort of framing this, the, the current emphasis on this precipitated, as I mentioned, uh, by the death of George Floyd and other, other tragedies um, in the African-American community. Uh, I wonder if you, kind of how you've digested it, in, it at, at this moment. Yeah, I think so. First of all, um, it it goes without saying, but I will I continue to say it before I start talking about any of it. It is a tragedy, uh, in fact, and uh, it's a tragedy in many ways, and um, and it causes for a pause and reflection, at least for me, uh, in several dimensions. Um, as as an African American male, obviously. Um, and reflecting upon my experiences, you know, in this country and frankly abroad, 
um, as a parent and reflecting upon the experiences my children have had, um, the diverse experiences, frankly, the the changing of uh, of those experiences, especially over the last, I'd say, three to four years, um, and and I also reflect as you know a leader um, and you know and participant in you know in corporate America and in, in the country and the in the world, and they all kind of have different um, kind of angles, you know. Um, you know, as uh, as a as an African American male, um, you know, I could you know you see yourself in a George Floyd. Um, I shared with one group. I tried to count the number of times, you know, over the course of my life that I've been pulled over by the police, and it's in the teens somewhere. Um, and uh, and and sometimes I deserved it, obviously, because I'm like any of us, we <laughs> we make mistakes on the road. But there were a large number of those times when it just wasn't even right, you know? Um, and, and, and so you, you're learned, you taught, you're taught how to deal with those situations. Um, with my kids, um, and I'll come back to me more specifically as we sort of weave through this whole conversation with my kids. Um, it's, it's a tragedy and it is one in a series of tragedies, um, that began several years ago. Um, uh, when, they essentially kind of lost their innocence in, um, in, in their childhood with regard to, um, their identity. Um, they, they believed for a very long time that their identity, um, frankly had more to do with, uh, the way that they treated people and the way that they performed in school, um, the way that they learned how to grow and, um, and, within a series of uh, events, Ahmaud Aubrey, you know, et cetera, that happened over the years, um, uh, they, that sort of innocence of who they were, it just sort of got, it peels off one layer at a time. And, um, and, and the, the good part, but also the scary part is the George Floyd incident, uh, you know, and tragedy was a tragedy. They were upset about it. But instead of um, going down the energy curve of, you know, of, of hurt and fear and, and then productivity and then wanting to do something, they raced right to the, the, the point of wanting to do something, which for me means that we've been going through a lot of this for a long time. My kids are like teenagers, for goodness sake. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, um, <clears throat> and so. Um, while I think there's a positive side to that because it demonstrates how aware and conscious they are um, and their desire to contribute to society, um, it's sad that that awakening happened through tragic events, you know? And it's, it's even more sad that they've had horrific events, you know, in our hometown, in their school, on the baseball field within the last three or four years that never happened before then. Never. Um, and so, um, you know, and so I take my little example and I multiply it by some number and think, you know, um, that this is happening everywhere and, um, and change is going to have to happen. It will happen because we have an emergent, um, you know, um, age group that sees things a little bit differently. And you see that instantiated in the protests um, and the, the things that have been going on over the last couple of months and how diverse that really is. So I'll leave that alone. From a corporate perspective, um, I, it, it's, um, 
it's it's actually it's it's encouraging and uh in a, in many ways i'll just say that um i will also say that the things and the stories that at some level now are being shared inside of corporate america um black folks have been screaming about this for decades um for decades and it's unfortunate that a man having someone uh, have a, their their knee on his neck for eight and a half minutes has now kind of opened up the ears and eyes of the corporate institution to realize that indeed something is fundamentally wrong with the way um, that that black people have been treated um, over over the, the many many years um, and so it is what it is and if that was the trigger that catalyzes the change uh, maybe that's the way it's supposed to happen but I think it's it's unfortunate that, that someone had to lose their life for us to realize that there's work to do uh, with regard to how uh, we operate, how our cultures operate, um, how you know racial bias, discrimination is sort of embedded in our institutions, um, and and there are very few of us that have navigated our way through it. Um, in very unicornish ways. Um, and all of our stories are very different, um, but, um, but hopefully that changes. And, and it doesn't take one to be a unicorn to be you know, a black person to make it to the C-suite of a corporate, you know, of a Fortune 100 company you know, mm-hmm. in the future. Can you talk a bit about your path? I, I, I think it's a that your yeah. notion of the, the unicorn is really powerful, that it, it takes, a, takes a variety of things going right in order to to navigate the path different from others, talk, talk a bit about yours, if you would, Ted. Yeah, I mean, I, I and it's it's an interesting question because, you know, I, I've shared and just recently with some interns, kind of my career path, and it, there it's it, there is no it's it's interesting. It's kind of all over the place in some ways, but it's very simple in other ways. But I don't know if you can actually repeat the pattern. I don't think it's repeatable because I think it's unique to several situations. Um, in my own personal life, beginning with my father, you know, my dad worked, first of all, my mother, both of my parents, my mother was a social worker. She just retired as a 40 year social worker in Baltimore city. Um, my father worked in labor relations and human resources. He worked for the equal employment opportunity commission. He worked for the national labor relations board. When he passed away, he was an HR director at NASA. Um, and between the two of, of them, um, and their friends as a child, as a teenager, I was exposed to lots of stories about how the world works in corporate America and the government and, um, and how the politics of the office operates, um, the, the hundreds of stories of challenge and discrimination uh, my father shared with me from his time at the EEOC. And it sort of it, it settled in my mind um, you know, many things that became um, uh, sort of foundational ways that I see the world and things that need to be improved. Um, it, it actually, pro- it, more, more than likely, I believe that it set the stage for me to actually, and this is going to sound really strange, but have empathy for the institution as I went through college and worked my way into the institution of corporate America. Because my father had shared all these stories with me, I actually knew exactly what to expect. I knew that um, that that there would be inherent bias when I walked into inside of any room. Um, I knew that uh, you know that there were certain people um, that uh, that sort of 
who were the leaders and there were cliques and there was a good old boys network, all this stuff I kind of knew was going to be there. Um, you know, I know how people treated each other when they changed jobs because I heard all these stories. And so that the, the, the understanding of that and the empathy of that, and, and empathy is a big word, but I'm just going to use it for right now, uh, allowed me to not walk in the door and, and sort of first not understand it, but not use it as a barrier for me uh, to build relationships and, and focus on results, um, you know, every single day. And so those, those stories were big. Um, I'd say beyond that, um, I am, I took advantage of opportunities. When I finished high school, I did this program called Inroads. Inroads is about their mod, their mantra is to develop and place minority youth in business and industry to prepare them for corporate and community leadership. That's what they do. Um, they teach you a ton of things about how do you, how do you operate in the corporate world and, and how are you successful, you know, from mentoring to how you show up to how you, uh, you know, focus on results and build relationships. Um, when I went to Morehouse, um, I landed a scholarship with AT&T Bell Laboratories. Um, and another program that in addition to a scholarship and, um, and an experience at AT&T every summer, had a nurturing component with mentors and other, you know, exposure. When I went to Ford, I went into a rotational program that was all about nurturing leaders, right? Um, and uh, and mentors and and all those kinds of things. And I was able to use all the things I learned from these other programs. And there's a whole there's a whole bucket of these things that happen in even smaller forms along the way. There's a theme that I'm I'm trying to bring out here, which is this idea of nurturing people. Right. Um, and and so um, and, and I and, and what and the real pivot in my career was a mentor uh, by the name of Marv Adams and Marv and I met. He was the CIO at Ford and he sat down in my office the first time he met and he asked me, so when do you want to become a CIO? I had no idea. I was like, I have no idea. I'm, I'm not even thinking about becoming a CIO. I think I've told you a story before, Peter, you know, and um, and. Marv is an example, and there were many before him that planted a seed in my mind about the possibilities uh, that I hadn't even imagined for myself. Um, and, and, and that opened my eyes up to that possibility. And our relationship was about both me supporting him and adding value to his office, but also developing me as a future leader. And so um, beyond that, and sort of that pattern reoccurred with a couple other leaders uh, at Ford and then at Boeing. Um, and, and so all these things are cumulative and build up to a, a series of experiences, um, a variety of relationships uh, that makes one you know, ready for the, the big challenges in corporate America uh, at the C-suite, you know, and two or three down, you know, from that. And so, uh, you know, I think it's all those things coming together that kind of made me the person that I am. Um, the, this empathy for the institution, but also empathy for individuals um, that I learned as a child, you know, with exposure to all different um, walks of life. Um, and, and then as a leader that plays in, uh, because as a leader, you know, you're, you're sort of at the, um, you know, you're the conductor of the orchestra and, uh, the orchestra has, you know, many different instruments that do different things. And if you don't understand something about, you know, all the elements of the orchestra, then you can't conduct. 
Um, and so, uh, so that, that theme of empathy sort of flows through in being a leader and taking the time to understand the elements of, of the band or the orchestra that I'm working with and how to sort of pull those together to make, you know, really good music. And I'm using this, this comparison because I, I just think it's so, it's so visual and it, I, at least it helps me stay true to what I believe is important to be as far as being a leader, you know? I, I love the analogy too. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's the need to weave a fabric together that, that, that is, you know, collectively better than the individuals alone. Um, and, I, and I'm curious mm-hmm. also, um, so how do you think about, uh, I, for, for yourself, but also how do you advise, um, colleagues and friends, black or white, uh, as to paying this forward, like d- doing for others or creating maybe easier or more yeah. obvious paths for, um, for young African-Americans, uh, and young meaning maybe even pre, uh, you know, so, so children as well as, um, you know, as they come, yeah. as they come up into the, 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 the working world, um, what are the, what are the, the advice that you offer or, or, or what are you living in terms of paying that forward? Yeah. You know, I, very blunt, <laughs> I'll give you a blunt answer. Then I'll give you a more, a better answer. You know, my blunt answer is just be better leaders, Peter. Be a better leader. And so it kind of goes back to what I said before. Leadership is about conducting the orchestra, right? Um, you can't have a great orchestra with all woodwinds or all trumpets because you make one sound. Um, and, so, uh, and so in order to do that really well, you have to take advantage of the diversity that exists within our world, um, access it, uh, pull it in, nurture it, and make it all work together. Uh, with with regard to black folks specifically, um, I think that um, understanding and empathizing with the black experience, you know, begins with uh, great listening and understanding uh, the things that the people around you may have gone through. But it also involves you taking some steps on your own and taking ownership uh, for developing yourself more broadly and going and getting in spaces where you are uncomfortable and you're learning something different. Um, experiential learning, I think, is the most powerful learning. And so there are many, many ways to do that, um, whether it's physical or, or reading or movies or whatever it is. But I think you've got to understand a little bit more about uh, the people that you're dealing with. You, you have to remember if you turn, if you sort of flip this around and, and this is a very controversial way of looking at it and it's very uncomfortable to say, um, but black people come and live in your world every day. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is your world, you know? And so we don't need to go practice that anymore because we live it every single day. You know, my wife and I were watching, we're watching, we're like, you know, watching uh, movies on TV and if you just if you just pause for a second and you go through your whatever your um your your whatever uh on demand but you know your choice on demand tool is and look at the number of movies that have absolutely no black people in them mm-hmm. absolutely none just look at the cast yeah um you know look at the org charts of you know the leaders look at your org chart mm-hmm. you know and so you so so the world that black folks are trying to get into is this world. And think about that. Think about how if the world were flipped around, if the world was all black and you were trying to break, like think about it with that experience, you know, yeah. it's a very different experience. Um, anyway, um, 
I, I, so it's very funny. I'll tell you a 20 second story. Many Please years ago, my wife and I went, went to Zimbabwe and, uh, we, um, we went and done a safari and we finally said, we finally got to the portion of our trip. We we're going into Harare, the city. <clears throat> and when we got off of whatever it was bus train, I don't know how we got there now. It was so long ago and stepped foot into a city that was drenched with black people. I think we almost cried. We'd never seen a place where it was like New York City, but completely flipped the other way. And we were like in shock, you know, it's just a different world. And I know that's a superficial way of looking at it, but that um, that's the, the tip of the iceberg. It's just the surface. But beyond that, um, that that has informed in our country, in our institutions, the networks, you know, um, it has informed the way that opportunity is is taken advantage of. Um, you know, in the corporate world, unfortunately, um, in the tech world in particular, um, we have these archetypes of what we think tech professionals look like, and they don't tend to look like black kids. You know, um, it's it's you know one of my personal stories is you know there was this archetype in, when sort of the the Silicon Valley world was growing up and the tech you know, world was growing up of this kid, you know, on headphones writing code, right. Um, and sort of hunched over and, you know, you know, you never saw a black kid, but I will tell you as a teenager um, on a Commodore 64 in my bedroom with the first generation of hip hop music playing in the background, that was me. Right. But you would never, ever see that in written you know, format anywhere. Right. And so that doesn't become um, a way that the world thinks about this technology field. Um, it doesn't become a way that children see um, you know, um, opportunity, right? And so <clears throat> we have lots of challenges that fall off from there uh, in the corporate world that, that leads to implicit and explicit bias um, and reinforcement of the same relationships and people that you're comfortable with, that you believe that you can trust uh, versus, you know, leaders really need to be deliberate about diversifying their teams. It makes a huge difference, right? So, you know, investing in HBCUs, um, uh, we uh, have a $6 million program with the Thurgood Marshall College Fund. We're bringing in excellent talent, um, investing in uh, high school programs. There are programs everywhere around this country. Uh, there's a program in Louisiana called STEMNOLA in New Orleans. That's amazing. There's a program in, tech, in uh, Tennessee called Code Crew. Amazing. Um, there are, I mean, I could, every city has them. You, you, could, you just got to go find them. And it helps you build the pipeline. But in addition to helping you build the pipeline, by having your, your folks on your teams interact with these organizations, they actually see the world differently. You know, it allows them to develop more empathy for, uh, for people that don't look like them, you know. Um, and, and then when you get folks into, into your, the corporate world, you have to be deliberate about not reinforcing uh, the same networks and biases that have always been reinforced um, and make sure that uh that there's equal opportunity for you know all folks um and and blacks obviously included when it comes to development opportunities and special assignments and things like that yeah. uh, i think that it is, all these things are really important you know yeah yeah that's great i mean maybe just a, a last thought if you don't mind like 
Are the yeah. things you remind yourself to, to, to remain hopeful or optimistic? I mean, I think one of the, 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 such the sad thing about your story about your kids is this loss of innocence at such an early age. Yeah. Um, and and I wonder like how in your conversations with them as they grow up or as you as you look forward to the you know generations behind them are there are there ways in which you remain or, or try to remain hopeful and, and optimistic about the future? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first of all, I think that um, I am I am an optimist and I inherently believe that there are good people in this world. Um, you know, um, I you know I and I, and I come across them all the time and I latch onto them like. Um, you know, like nothing else. Uh, and I kind of call them the village that helps continue to develop and build me up. I'm, I'm, I'm more mature than you would think to continue to think about myself as being influenced by a village, but I do, you know, I do think that um, there are people around me today. And so I think they're inherently good people. Um, I, I'm encouraged and I teach the kids to seek out, uh, you know, people that are good, people that are kind, people that are like-minded and have mutual best interest in mind. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I think that this, 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 uh, the generation that's emerging will see the world a little bit differently. And I think that will drive a lot of change uh, going forward, Peter. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that my pathway is, is an experiment and an example of the fact that it can work and it, we just need a lot more of it. Right. Um, you know, we, it, and that's, that's really, you know, all it comes down to, I, I've never considered myself, you know, to be the smartest or most genius person in the room. Um, I just work hard and I've gotten a lot of help over the years. Um, and, and I'm relentless about, you know, making progress and innovating and getting results. Um, and, and all those things that we call grit, I think I'm just a big sort of example of grit happening. Right. And so, um, but that takes a village, you know? And so, um, I I think, you know, I'm, I'm encouraged because I do believe that there are good people. I believe that there is an awakening happening. And so the, 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 the number of folks that get it is, is expanding very quickly. And the number of folks that don't get it, um, I believe, um, is, is getting smaller and smaller. And frankly, um, I, without getting into specifics, uh, my view is that this is the opportunity to push hard uh, to make sure that as many people get it as possible so that the people that don't, it, don't get it just become irrelevant. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we will never live in a perfect world. Um, the unfortunate part is that uh, the folks that don't get it, that reinforce bias and discrimination and racism, um, you know, still are in places of, of influence and power um, uh, that, that keep reinforcing the things that don't help us you know, really be as, as strong as we can be as institutions, as people, you know, as a government. And, th- and the more that we focus on the good and the way that things should be, the more irrelevant uh, the detractors will become over time, you know, yeah. and yeah. that's what I'm hopeful for. Well, great. Well, Ted, you've yeah. been very generous with your time and your insights. And, you know, as always, I'm, I'm, I feel really blessed to, to call you a friend. Thank you so much for your willingness yeah. to share, to share all, all of this. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in. Please join me on Monday when my guest will be Harmon Chief Information and Digital Officer Nick Parada.